0: on Anesthesia Nerds. Thank you so much for joining me for another fantastic episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but veterinary anesthesia and pain management, how to make things better overall for our patients. Today, I am joined by a really phenomenal guest, somebody I'm so excited to talk to and have you guys listen in on. Um, This person has not only been a really good source of information personally for me, through her work with ABTAA. But just a fantastic source of information. If you ever get the chance to, to hear her speak, please, please go do it. And I'm talking about none other than veterinary technician extraordinaire, Masya Fletcher, RVNS, VTS anesthesia, actually the first VTS anesthesia in New Zealand. What? So let me tell you a little bit about her. She was teaching at Massey. Am I saying this right? Massey. Massey? Okay, see, I knew. <laughs> She was teaching at the veterinary school. She is an international lecturer and educator. And most recently, she is now using her veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia superpowers to go out into veterinary clinics and work as an independent consultant. And she's working under the name Pink Stethoscope. And she's going into all these clinics and helping them elevate the standard of care when it comes to their own anesthesia and pain management. So please, please, please welcome...
1: Marcia Fletcher, the amazing, to the show. You are amazing. I can't believe you just gave me that intro. That was so cool. (laughs) Thanks, Tash. Nice to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) With all the time differences um, and setting this up, I'm really excited that this finally worked out for us to talk. Yes, we got here. Uh, So tell us about your new adventure of you going into clinics and kind of helping them out with their anesthesia right, you know, in their own home. Uh, How does that work and how are you liking it?
1: Oh, it is so exciting, Tash. So um, I started the pink stethoscope a couple of years ago. I decided to use that name because I was always known for not only my pink scrubs, but my pink stethoscope. And I thought that that was quite branded to me. So I decided to to leave the uh, education side of things and go out into the clinics and be able to assist more there. And I can tell you that it's completely different. You're not anesthetizing a patient every day, but I I absolutely love that I'm able to reach vets, reach technicians in their in their natural place of work and and actually see how it's you know done in the real world and and therefore give them uh, information that is able to help them without it always being at sort of, I guess, the the lecture level, um, you can help them with the clinical cases, just small things make big differences, right? I always say that um, I'm changing the world one anesthesia at a time. I'm trying to just make these changes so that we slowly and surely increase the standard of care in our veterinary hospitals around New Zealand and also around the world.
0: Certainly around the world, Um, and for those of you guys who don't know, I recently left my full-time job working in um, veterinary research um, to do the same thing throughout the United States, so I see that there is a large need for us to get better information out there, Um, and I think the cool thing about veterinary technician specialists in anesthesia, I mean, any veterinary technician specialist is really, they have just such a wealth of knowledge on this particular topic. And to be able to go out and share that knowledge to make anesthesia better for so many different pets out there is really, that's really kind of like what I get excited about and nerding out about. Um, I do really miss the salary from research though. I'm not going to lie to you. I do (laughs)
1: like money. Um, um, I Other miss- than that, yes, yeah. every day. That's what I miss. I miss my hands being in in the job every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I still do relief, so I'm still uh, like doing anesthesia shifts uh, at least once a week to try to keep my hands in it as still as much as possible. But I do love it. It is. It's definitely the specialty for me. I'm, you know, there was a time where I was like, should I get my VTS in dentistry? And I'm looking back, I'm like, who <laughs> yeah. no. So glad. No. I- no, you yes. were made for anesthesia. No. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> think I was. Yeah, I'm a You dork. were. <laughs> All right, so this is a case-based show. So we like to talk about different cases. And you and I kind of talked earlier and, you know, spoiler alert, I don't give my uh, guests like, you know, pop quiz cases to make it hard on them. We definitely talked about it <laughs> before because I like to know, kind of, what's your favorite case to anesthetize? What's something that really gets you going? And so today, your case, is duke all right duke duke, is, duke he i guess what breed he is i'll give you a couple of hints. duke is either right gonna be a a roddy a german shepherd maybe a malinois something like that so duke is in fact a 10 year old german shepherd he has came into the clinic because he is you know, weak, his owners are worried about him. He's having some heavy breathing. When you, you know, he presents into the clinic. We do a little bit more of an exam. We see he's tachycardic. He is pale. We maybe do a fast scan and see that we have fluid. We tap it and maybe it's blood. He's got a hemo abdomen. And let's say he gets admitted. We put an IV catheter in him. We're talking to the owners about surgery. Now, once he is a go for surgery, And you have been assigned to be his anesthesia technician. Yes. Give us your thoughts. What are your first thoughts? What are some things you're most concerned about? Anything you want to make sure is done before we get into anesthesia? Some preparation? So let's talk about this piece kind of from start to finish.
1: Okay, so um, this is the type of case that you'll be called in for any time of the night. We certainly can't wait for this patient to go uh, at eight o'clock the next morning. Unfortunately, they'll be dead by that time. So uh, ultimately, I call these my emergency anesthesia cases. So that's where an emergency anesthesia is required because surgical stabilization has to happen to save this animal's life. We have really no choice. And and what that ultimately means is that I don't have a lot of time to do the stabilisation that I need to do before this animal heads off to surgery. So I've got to be quite succinct about how I think about the case and what I institute as stabilisation means before I get up to anaesthesia. So the first things that I do, if this dog's already got an IV catheter in place, that's great, but I'll probably go ahead and place a secondary IV catheter. I want to have two large bore IV catheters, and that means that I can deliver uh, fluids or, you know, life-saving drugs or anything in particular. But I just have multiple lines in my patient. The second thing, or certainly occurring at the same time, is I'm going to put this patient onto oxygen. If we think about a hemoabdomen, hemoabdomens have a a massive amount of hemorrhage. Their their blood volume is sitting inside their abdomen instead of sitting inside their vessels. And ultimately that means that there is a massive reduction in cardiac output. If we think about cardiac output, we know that our cardiac output is our heart rate times our stroke volume. We just don't have stroke volume in this dog anymore, so we thoroughly expect this patient's blood pressure to be really, really low. Having low blood pressure, having low cardiac output means that we've got tissue hypoxia occurring in our patient and hypoxemia in general. So if I've lost so much blood into my abdomen, I've got really low cardiac output, I've got low blood pressure, I've got tissue hypoxia and hypoxemia, it's really sensible to put this patient onto whatever means of oxygen they are tolerating while we do these other initial stabilisation. We're trying to saturate the red blood cells that we actually have within the vessels uh, and give us the best chance of getting oxygen around the body. Because this patient also uh, is more likely to be desaturated by not having enough red blood cells going around the system and not being oxygenated as well, we also see cardiac arrhythmias in this preoperative period of our hemoabdomen. So I like to stick an ECG on at this time. So I know my patient's not asleep yet, but I really want to see what's happening with his heart while we're doing our stabilisation And therefore, I can monitor which arrhythmias are occurring and warrant treatment if they are sort of ventricular arrhythmias. We can start maybe some lignocaine or a lignocaine CRI. I think you call it lidocaine, do you? Yes, Lidocaine, (laughs) lignocaine, potato, potato. So I, I think about doing these things quite quickly initially. So I've got oxygen on, I've got my second IV access, and I'm thinking about getting my other monitoring equipment on, like my ECG. I want to add in placing a Doppler here as well. So the Doppler isn't necessarily the best tool for monitoring blood pressure. Of course, we're really only getting systolic from it. But I like to have it on because it means I can hear the patient's heart rate. So using it as a heart rate monitor instead of a blood pressure monitor might be acceptable in this preoperative phase. Just so I can sort of move around this patient, I can you know, run back and forth from the bench to the patient and still hear what's happening to their heart rate over time and certainly listen for those rhythm changes that might show me that they're having, or make me realize they're having cardiac arrhythmias. So I like to put that on at the same time. And then we need to talk about fluids. We, we might need to start bolusing this patient to some degree, certainly stabilising them when they're weak and collapsing and, and uh, basically hypovolemic. They're in a situation of shock and I need to give some sort of fluid back to these vessels. So that usually starts in the preoperative phase as well. And the best fluid for us to do that with is something like an isotonic crystalloid. So that would be Hartman's or Lacto ringers solution and I would go ahead and give uh, goal-directed fluid resuscitation to the patient. And what that means, goal-directed fluid resuscitation, would be giving something like 10 to 20 mils per kilo as a fluid bolus initially, and seeing if the perfusion parameters change after I've given that bolus. So did the heart rate come down a little bit? Maybe the heart rate was 150, and it's come back down to 130. Did their mucous membranes go a little bit pinker? Are they breathing slightly better? Are their extremities slightly warmer? So I'm looking at my perfusion parameters to see if that bolus of fluid made a difference. If the heart rate comes down while well, I'm giving the fluid bolus, but then starts to trek back up once the fluid is finished, is telling me that I probably need to give another bolus. So we may give another 10 to 20 ml per kilo fluid bolus just to give volume back into these vessels in this preoperative phase. So they're probably the first things that I would move to The next thing to think about is that this patient needs some form of analgesia. Um, You know, a a belly full of blood because a tumor, usually a hemangiosarcoma, has ruptured is painful. And often it gets a little bit sidestepped because there's so much to manage in that first kind of phase of trauma or, um, you know, the shock that we're trying to deal with. But I want to make sure that all of these patients get some form of analgesia. And of course, the mu agonist opioids are probably the best thing that we can give the patients at this stage, even if it's just a very small dose. Over here for me in New Zealand, I would probably give something like methadone. I could start them on fentanyl, but methadone would probably be where I would go. And then I know that I'm at least trying to look after this patient's analgesia before we get to the point of um, getting them up to uh, anesthesia to put them under anesthesia.
0: Yeah, I usually have methadone. Uh, methadone is, I was just talking about this uh, in the, the neurology episode I recorded earlier, is methadone, I, I just love the fact that methadone not only um, works with the mu receptor, but also has some NMDA uh, yeah. receptor action as well. So I feel like that's just a little, you know, icing on the cake there. Um, but Absolutely. certainly fentanyl. Fentanyl is one of those drugs that I go to as well. Now, yeah. let's say you have given this patient some fluids, you have your extra catheters, you're ready to induce, walk us through your choices for induction, because I know that, at least in the United States, the go-to for everyone is propofol, and we're, you know, okay. We're, just, we're okay using these kind of massive amounts of propofol, and right. okay. I just, you know, kind of want to talk to you about that, because we know that propofol sure. is definitely not benign, and <laughs> in a critical yep. patient, might be worried about that.
1: I, I agree. So if we think about uh, where this patient sits on the on the scale of a death line, so how close is a hemoabtonin to the death line? Well, they're actually pretty close. So we said at the start that this patient is actually going to die more than likely if we do not get them to theatre in quite a um, kind of emergent situation. So uh, to me, I have to think about when I'm producing anesthesia, when I'm going from conscious to unconscious, that, as you say, it's, it's not a benign process. It's a Uh, a means to an end. We need to get our patient intubated. But the drug that we choose needs to be uh, appropriate for the patient. So given that this patient is, you know, maybe they're able to walk. Usually they're not. Usually these patients are recumbent. So if they're recumbent already, we really don't need very much drug to get us from that slightly conscious level to unconscious to be able to intubate. So our choice needs to be quite clear. And the way I think this through is if I had a sick a uh, hemoabdomen versus a uh, almost dead hemoabdomen. So an early uh, decompensated shock versus a, a late decompensated shock. In the early stages, um, I would think that there is an opportunity to maybe use a little bit of a true induction agent. So uh, propofol, I can understand that people think, OK, well, there's not too many things wrong with it, but every drug has good effects and bad effects. I would suggest perhaps doing it this way. I usually start by doing a co-induction technique. So I use something like fentanyl, midazolam, uh, and maybe lignocaine in my really, really sick patients. And then I have like a sniff. I'm talking a smidge, like a tiniest little bit of an extra true induction agent like propofol. Or here over New Zealand, um, we use our alfaxalone as well. Just I'm talking a smidge of this stuff. Nothing like I would usually use to induce anesthesia in a fit, healthy, normal patient. So I do this technique where I give fentanyl, I give them maybe the midazolam, I might have the lignocaine as a bolus as well. And all of those drugs, none of those are induction agents, but these patients are so close to being unconscious that I really don't need these induction agents the same way as they would if they were fit and healthy and normal. I always have a little backup of it drawn up though, just in case I can't get them intubated off those drugs. So for me personally, I don't tend to just draw up uh, propofol. You know, I'm thinking four migs per kg might be what you'd use to induce anesthesia over there. Um, I don't tend to have that much drawn up ready to induce. I have a smidge, maybe one mg per kg drawn up, and then I do the rest of the induction, and I try and achieve it with drugs that aren't actually induction agents. It sounds really weird, doesn't it? I'm trying to induce anesthesia, and I'm doing it with things that actually aren't induction agents, but it just shows how <laughs> sick these patients are. Uh, really are. And if I get too much of the propofol, I can easily see me push this patient to the death line. And we, we don't come back from the death line, unfortunately. So I, I would choose usually not to use a full induction of propofol or alfaxolone.
0: Right, and we do utilize. There are some clinics here who have started to use more of a alone. And just so we're we're all on the same page, nerds. Um, we also, this is not a patient. We would advocate for masking down with oh inhalant <laughs> anesthetic. So just for you guys listening out there. You're still masking down patients. This is absolutely not the patient that we would want to do that with. I mean, hopefully you're moving away from that completely, but definitely want to just want to put that out there. That's not what we want to do for this particular patient.
1: Yep, I, I totally <laughs> agree. <laughs>
0: um, all right, so let's say we are in the operating theater now and okay. our surgeon is doing their job, right? The surgery tech's trying to find the plug for the ligature, and you as the anesthesia technician most likely are going to be dealing with some level of hypotension, right? So oh, yes. because I think this is the most common effect that we're going to deal with, uh, and it happens so often with these guys, let's walk through kind of your tips for dealing with hypotension in this this patient in particular.
1: Sure. So as we stated, these guys are hypovolemic. They don't have the stroke volume to maintain their cardiac output. So you should and always expect our patients to be quite profoundly hypotensive. And of course, if we put them onto an inhalational agent like isoflurane, that promotes vasodilation and depression of your myocardial muscle, So further promoting our patient to be hypotensive. So we we thoroughly expect it to happen. So let's think about how we can treat this. The first thing I'm going to say is, when a patient is actively bleeding from a mass, so this is a splenic mass, they're actively bleeding into their abdomen, we actually have to be kind of careful how high we push the blood pressure prior to that bleed being stopped. Now, what I mean by that is, we do something called permissive hypotension. It means basically I'm gonna tolerate a lower blood pressure until the source of bleeding is under control, so I can then increase the pressure. If I treat the blood pressure too aggressively, when the source of bleeding is not under control, I can easily damage the clot or blow the clot off the area that was bleeding and further promote uh, further bleeding from that mass. So I I can actually do a disjustice to my patient by pushing the pressure too high too soon. But I also don't want to just let them be hypotensive. So when we say permissive hyperten- hypotension, I'm trying to make sure I say it clearly with my Kiwi accent, hypotension, um, we're actually trying to promote a, a mean of about 60 Or if you're using something that measures the systolic as the predominant number, we're going for a systolic of about 90. So we're not trying to let it drop away completely. And we may need to use uh, either fluids or low uh, anesthetic agents or uh, actual presses to assist us to get the pressure up to that number. Uh, But we just have to be really critical about how how high we push the blood pressure before the bleeding is stopped. I would also like to say I would choose to put an arterial catheter in these patients if they have the ability to do it. So if you have the ability to place an arterial catheter, please do so. Pop an outline in. As soon as you do that, you've got beat by beat changes in your patient's blood pressure. And let me tell you guys, this is a patient where their blood pressure is going to change beat by beat during this procedure. So we absolutely want to use this if we have it available to us. So place an outline, monitor your invasive blood pressure so that we're getting the best possible readings of our patient. We also have the means to do blood gas analysis if we have that, um, that available to us, we can do blood gas. So I'm I'm monitoring this blood pressure really critically. And as soon as that bleeding, I guess, is more under control, that's when I can really start to think about increasing the pressure. So we need to use agents that give us uh, back volume. So uh, that's a way of constricting our vessels, right? So using our vasopressors is a really sensible idea here. If we think of the way that our vasopressors work, they're causing uh, constriction to our vessels. It gives us back preload, also increases afterload, which therefore increases preload to the heart, increases our patient's cardiac output, and therefore increases blood pressure. So that's the right sort of drug to use under these situations. At the same time, we may have to use other things. They've lost a lot of their blood, right? So we may want to be doing something like a blood transfusion or a autotransfusion, a blood salvaging technique to give blood back to this patient because there's nothing better for blood pressure than filling up those vessels with their own blood again
0: let's say you're at a general practice maybe you don't have a blood products or you don't have a way to auto transfuse or something like that. And I'm looking at it and the only thing I, you know, I have on my shelf is maybe I do have dopamine and maybe I do have, you know, I don't even know if a majority of places have dobutamine. Um, but I feel like a lot of places have at least dopamine and norepi.
1: Um, sure. so
0: walk us through, um, how would you utilize those products in this? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, so we can use dopamine or, um, so they work slightly differently, of course. So dopamine being a uh, beta-1 agonist, so increases the force of contraction of the myocardial muscle and increases heart rate. So we could utilize that type of drug. It's absolutely fine. So using that as a CRI to bring up the blood pressure. And then if we've got norepinephrine, then we can use that as a vasopressor where it's providing the constriction back to the vessels, increasing afterload, therefore increasing preload. So we've got two completely different ways to increase blood pressure, but both completely okay. And I don't mind, uh, over here in New Zealand, a lot of places have dopamine, but not um, nor we have nor adrenaline, right? Different mm-hmm. word for just the fun of it. Um, so if they've only got dopamine on the shelf, that's what you need to use. We need to use an actual drug, one of the actual superheroes to bring up the blood pressure, because we really won't get it if we don't have volume in those vessels. We're just not going to ever get there. And as you say, if you don't have blood products to give, and we haven't got a means to deliver it, we're going to have to increase their blood pressure some way. And using those drugs is how we need to do it.
0: Let's talk about something maybe a little bit controversial. Um, At least uh, here in the States, colloids have kind of fallen out of favor. Um, So how do you guys and how do you guys feel about uh, colloids for hypotension in this patient?
1: Sure, so I I hear you with the falling out of favor. And that's something that I always say uh, when I talk about them in in talks is that colloids were in and then they were out and they're slightly back in here. Um, So when we look at the, the information we have about colloids, initially we thought they were amazing, cool, large molecules, we pop them back into the vessels, they stay within the vascular space. So for a patient that's lost blood from the vascular space, that sounds like a good idea. Then we got a lot of information from the human literature world where they were very capable of causing acute kidney injury to patients. So we started to go, "Oh, dear God, no, let's not use those." So they went out of favour. When we look at it now, it's it's interesting, we're we're still trying to get, I guess more and more research done. this is the way of the world, but we haven't had the acute kidney injury per se, in dogs and cats. So we do in humans, we haven't had the same information presented in dogs and cats yet, yet, yet (laughs) I say, because it may come. Um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you don't have dopamine or noradrenaline, nor epinephrine, you haven't got the means to give bloods right now, but there is a bag of colloids on your shelf. Go and get your bag of colloids. So this patient is in a dire situation. We, we know that uh, particularly if this is a hemangiosarcoma, the prognosis is poor, even if we get them to the other side of this. Um, maybe survival is three months, an average of three months post hemangiosarcoma. So let's all be real. If all we have on the shelf is a bag of colloids and it's gonna allow us to keep this patient alive through its surgery, get your bag of colloids. We know that we deliver somewhere between five and 20 mils per kilo as a colloid uh, bolus. You might also have hypertonic saline as well, like the 7% saline, you could also try that. But if that's what you've got, then you kind of need to use it. I'm I'm not going to sit here and say that we have to use every, you know, oh, he can only have blood products and they must be perfect because that's not the real world. We, we know that if that's what's on your shelf, then you need to give it. Let's think about what could go wrong. So we know if we give too much colloids, it interferes with our platelet aggregation. I like to say that the platelets can't be friends and hold hands. And if <laughs> the platelets can't be friends and hold hands, then we're not going to make a clot and this patient needs to make a clot. So, you know, we need to think about the volumes we're delivering, but the the doses we can deliver is between 5 and 20 mils per kilo in the individual patient.
0: I got to tell you, I haven't used colloids in so long, probably because I've been at places that have blood products. We have, you know, we have all of the pressors. So, you know, I remember one German Shepherd uh torsion that we we busted out the vasopressin for like you know what i mean like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. Big it's like liquid gold Woo. liquid gold uh, okay <laughs> so i've been doing this i mean i've been doing anesthesia for a while and i can only remember two patients that we busted out the vasopressin for like you're like okay well that's just, the hail mary just, just, okay
1: you take
0: pictures you're like this yeah. <laughs> me with the vasopressin <laughs> the vasopressin it's like a celebrity um <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's say that this patient, you know, does get managed. Um, uh, you have maybe you start some dopamine on them. You're able to keep your inhalant low. Talk to me about recovery for this patient, you know, because okay. certainly as soon as we turn the inhalant off, it doesn't mean that everything's great. Oh, we got the tumor out. No problem. Um, right. Let's talk about the potential for arrhythmias and maybe some pain management stuff op for this guy.
1: Okay, so recovery, we're not out of the woods yet. So we've still got to get this patient back to being conscious. And the next 24 hours, no matter what, are going to be very critical. So the first thing I'm going to say is you need to be with your patient in recovery. This is not the time to go and make a cup of tea or clean theater. We we need to stay with this patient. This is the most critical time. Of course, we know we lose more patients per se in recovery than we do under that maintenance phase of anesthesia. So stick with this patient. And the next thing I'm going to say is I want you to keep every piece of monitoring on that you possibly can. That means I want the ECG to stay on. If you placed a invasive uh, blood pressure, uh, an arterial catheter, keep that going into the recovery phase as well. Um, Keep your Doppler going so that you can hear the heart and, and monitor for those arrhythmias. The reason why we're more likely to see arrhythmias in recovery is because there's a degree of a reperfusion injury that occurs as we manipulate the disgusting spleen or when we remove it from the abdomen and we get sort of a reperfusion of those vessels. Uh, that's when we can see those necrotic mediators picked up, those ischemic uh, nasty necrotic uh, cells, and that means we're more likely to see the reperfusion injury type cardiac arrhythmias. So the ones we're looking for are ventricular cardiac arrhythmias. The reason they occur more is simply because there is more ventricular muscle mass than uh, atrial muscle mass. So we're likely to see things like uh, premature ventricular contractions, accelerated idioventricular rhythm, which is kind of like a slow VTAC, or ventricular tachycardia. So that's the the main ones we're expecting to see after a reperfusion injury. So we keep the CCG on. Yet means that I can keep a lignocaine CRI going for this patient in recovery. Of course, it's fantastic analgesia. It's a wonderful anti-inflammatory. So really sensible to keep that going. And the other one that I would keep going would be a fentanyl CRI or remifentanil, depending on what you had available. Uh, Do you have remifentanil over there?
0: There are some clinics, some specialty in university that, that will utilize remifentanil, yes. And for a while, when our opioid shortage was going on uh, and we really had a hard time getting anything, um, there were some clinics that did uh, sous fentanyl and remifentanil. But that's not oh, wow. no, that's not uh, very common, I would say. Right, so fentanyl would be the one. Not even that common that made general practices here in the U.S. have fentanyl. Um, right. Just because of the high in, you know, just kind of the social connotations that go along with uh, carrying yes. fentanyl, having to worry about carrying fentanyl in your practice, um, that kind of thing. So there's some that that don't even do that and they're maybe I would say probably more popular would be
1: hydromorphone or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if you've got hydromorphone, that's absolutely fine. You could use methadone at this time as well. So, um, and even something like uh, methadone, lignocaine, ketamine, CRI might be a good idea. So a different version of the milk, uh, because we know that both lignocaine and ketamine uh, assist us with the reperfusion injury. So they reduce the chance of seeing the cardiac arrhythmias associated with it. So it's uh, not a bad idea to use that kind of CRI in either the GDV type patient or in the hemoabdomen type of patient as well. So I'm always thinking about what else can I do for them. I need to keep this patient on oxygen as well. And I need to be really sensible about how I rewarm the patient. They're often cold on physical exams. So they get a little bit cold. You bleed out. You tend to not worry about your thermoregulation. So these patients present cold. And then we, we open up their abdomen in theatres. So we have huge evaporatory losses. And then we wake them up and they're, I I can't do Fahrenheit, but they're they're cold, right? They're they're colder (laughs) than we'd like them to be. If I say Celsius, they might be somewhere between like 34 degrees Celsius, but I know that's going to scare people. So we have to do a conversion. It's fine. You
0: know what? I mean, honestly, really, we in America are the ones that need to change. Like the entire world is metric. And I don't know why we still insist on these like weird uh, measures for everything. I saw this meme the other day that was like, you know, some crocodile or something was found in uh, a Florida man, of course, uh, home or something. And the measurement they used was an Ariana Grande-sized crocodile. And then the thing underneath it went like Americans will do anything to not use the metric system. Like Ariana Grande-sized. Like that's that is our unit of measurement now. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Very hard for us to think in units of 10, I guess. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I do like to be really good about my rewarming here. If my patient is shivering, remember that shivering, these are some of my favorite words, Tash, is metabolically expensive. Did you like that? Mm-hmm. Metabolically expensive shivering is metabolically expensive it means we're using so much more oxygen just to shiver so it's really not sensible for them to get to a point where they're conscious and shivering we need to be doing a really good job of rewarming them but at the same time um i guess we don't want to make them too hot too quickly as well because we've had a degree of uh, lack of oxygen they've had this global sort of ischemia when they they've had a lack of blood flow so we do have to be somewhat careful so what i would say is if they are shivering please 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 make Sure, you have them on oxygen so that we're providing them with uh, a, a larger oxygen source. We're increasing their fractional inspired oxygen while they are shivering and do rewarm them. Just don't go too high too fast.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Um, what do you guys usually use for rewarming there? Um, are you utilizing things like bubble wrap? Are you doing more active warming? Um, what, like, what, if a, what if a clinic doesn't have a bear hugger?
1: Yeah, and a lot of them don't. So uh, we have a, a slightly cheaper one here, which means that a few more places in New Zealand have the Mistral Air version, which is an, another form of that forced warm air warmer. But if we don't have that, we just have to do whatever's necessary. So that means using uh, appropriate padding in their cage. You can do um, the heat lamp type scenario, although I I tend to warn away from heat lamps because they are Uh, pretty easy to cause a burn, particularly in a patient that is vasoconstricted and hypothermic and unable to move away from a heat source, so just be very careful if that's your source of heating. Um, We can use circulating water blankets, so they're they're usually medical grade, meaning that they won't heat up over the temperature where it causes a burn, Uh, but we can use those. Some places don't have them at all. They have the electric kind of heating blanket type means. If you're using one of those, use two towels in between your patient. Please uh, be careful. They do go up quite high in their temperature and can cause burns. And then we have to go to the other forms. So that's, as you say, things like the bubble wrap or little suits. You can put the little socks on extremities of patients and and whatever we can do to warm them up. So uh, if you have the gold standard, I guess, of those active heating sources, the, the mistral air or the bear hugger type blankets, or you have maybe the hot dog pads. That's wonderful, if you don't have those, then we just have to do whatever is, is necessary, being very careful if it's not a medical grade heating source, not to overheat them. Um, fun fact for everyone, your skin burns at 45 degrees Celsius, we'll convert that later to, to Fahrenheit, and then everyone will be like, ah, that's what she meant. Um, so <laughs> if, the skin, if the skin burns at that temperature, and that's when we're kind of conscious, it can easily burn when we're vasoconstricted and unable to move away from the heat source. So it might seem like a good idea to make those floors fluid, warmy kind of fluid bags that are heated in the microwave or uh, a wheat bag that is heated in the microwave, but they can get extremely hot. So please be exceptionally careful about how you place them on your patients. To burn your patient, we need heat, we need time, and we need pressure. So uh, all those things kind of combine to make a perfect storm to, to burn them. So we just have to be, I guess, a little bit more careful when it's not a medical grade heating source.
0: Yeah, certainly. Oh, man, there's so much information here. Um, I would say the only other thing that I have for you is I love regional anesthesia and local anesthetics and all that. Do you guys utilize uh, like line blocks or anything like that
1: in these patients? some clinics do um, so there's i guess some some pros and, and cons for the line block and sometimes it's that sort of vasodilation it does at the site that upsets uh some people not wanting to use it so i guess it, i would say it's underutilized being able to do blocks i mean we can do something like a morphine epidural where we're giving really nice analgesia to cover um the abdomen that's a really good idea but not a lot of clinics uh and certainly in general practice would would do that but I, I certainly have placed morphine epidurals in these sorts of patients before. I think uh, it would be great if you could uh, come to New Zealand, Tush, and do some more things with the regional oh anesthesia. Oh my gosh, let's do it.
0: Oh my gosh, we <laughs> should do a regional nerve block lab. We should just do I a I think whole, that sounds amazing. Get our hands dirty. Oh, you know it. I love it. I'm like sacrococcygeal blocks all day long. Um, yes. Like the best thing ever. Again, nothing to do with the per se, but (laughs) my favorite block, like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. You guys,
1: Um, those those kids feel, they thank you already.
0: Oh my gosh. I know. It's one of those things that when I was taught that block, the guy who taught it, Dr. Dave Brunson, shout out to Dave Brunson, teaching me so many things, fantastic anesthesiologist. But I remember him saying, you know, if you master this block, like this block will change the way you practice. change the way you treat. And I was like, Oh, you know, that's, that's a bold statement, but it really did change our lives when it came to black cats, like changed. It just, it's amazing. So yeah, I'm all about the regional anesthesia. Um, and certainly kind of getting more into ultrasound guided blocks, like, you know, things like tap blocks and erector spinae blocks. We're doing some of those, uh, where I'm at at university of Pennsylvania. So, that's really exciting to be part of that. I think those are going to be really cool in the future, especially for any of our of these abdominal procedures. It's going to be Absolutely. very nice, amazing. Yeah, tap blocks. So yeah, oh, tap blocks are going to be the new. I don't know. Tap blocks might take over sacroiliac blocks in my like hierarchy <gasps> of favorite blocks. Ooh, I don't know. We're going to give statement. it some more time. I know that is a bold <laughs> statement, but I do feel like ooh did an erector spinae block on this beagle that came in uh, with multiple rib fractures and like within, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes of us doing these blocks, he settled down and just rested. And I was like, these blocks are amazing. So amazing. Yep. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm a dork and I like talking about drugs and blocks and that kind of stuff. And we can talk about drugs
1: and blocks all day. Here we are. This
0: is, why, where, this is why I am where I'm at today and not a successful journalist like my mother had hoped. Um, but <laughs> that's neither here. That's another episode. Um, but thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Very good information. Hopefully everybody feels like they can approach their hemoabdomen patients with a little more knowledge, step it up a little bit when it comes to their anesthetic care. If people want to find you or get a hold of you, uh, where can they find you?
1: Uh, You can inquire via my webpage. So that's the Pink Stethoscope, or you just need to Google Marcia Fletcher with the Pink Stethoscope and you'll find me there. Uh, Otherwise, you can send me an email. It's marcia at thepinkstethoscope.co.nz. That's so
0: cool. Thank you so much for being a guest. And for those of you, uh, I will put the link to her website in the show notes for this episode so you can check that out there. All right. Thank you so much for being a guest. We hope that uh, we can get you on again soon. Thank you, Tosh. Marcia, right? Perfect. Okay, a little, I feel like I have like a little accent when I say it, like a little, like a New York accent. Marcia, Marcia, Marcia Fletcher, <laughs> I love, love it. I kind of want to do my whole interview in that accent, but I'm not going to. Um, all right. Well, can I
1: pick an accent too? Where can I be from? Oh, I want to hear oh, you. Do, New
0: Zealand. Do you do America. You got to do American. America, fuck yeah. <laughs> That's, you got it. That's pretty much. That is. Uh, that is up. That's the exit. That's, That's it.